0: Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: What does the craziest NFL trade deadline in recent memory mean for the NFL at large. That's what we're going to talk about today on Stealing Bananas, brought to you by WinBet. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find my newsletter at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his great work over at Rotaviz. Sean, we talked a lot this offseason about how this was going to be a wild year because the 2022 off season and the player movement was more than we have ever seen. I mean, I, I cannot remember, and I, I, I would venture to guess there's never been a season, an offseason like it because back in the day, it was harder for player movement. It's become easier through time. A lot of trades, major quarterbacks, major wide receivers, key players changing teams all off-season, and then we come in-season and we get a trade deadline that is fast and furious. And social media's immediate response is, oh, the NFL is like the NBA trade deadline now. It's actually fun. You know, things are happening. This is the craziest trade deadline ever. You go from the craziest offseason ever to the craziest trade deadline ever. And it's a pretty notable shift in the way that teams are operating. Some, I mean, we talked in the offseason about how some of this is in response to the Rams successfully, you know hiring mercenaries, if, if you will, and and, and building through basically trading, trading away picks to get players. But I think it's probably more than that. But it, it is a really interesting thing to think through how it's impacting fancy football, how it might have impacted these first eight weeks and how we talked about all throughout these first eight weeks, how high variance things have been. And, and a lot of these teams still needed to kind of settle into their new identities. And there's been a lot of upheaval. And there's always a lot of turnover in the NFL, but over the last 12 months, a lot of upheaval. And it certainly has impacted the way that we've played fantasy football.
2: It has. And one of the narratives that you get from a lot of the commentary teams, which obviously are staffed in most cases by former players who talk to each other, are plugged into other goings on around the league and getting a sense of what people are thinking is that the shorter preseason and especially the fact that teams don't play any of their guys in the preseason, that that has led to the first month acting a little bit more like preseason. I don't know that that is necessarily the case. I think it's much more, or if you had to put, you know, percentages on it, you'd probably say 90% all of the off season upheaval maybe just you know 10% if that the preseason stuff but it's definitely the case that these teams don't come out ready to play in the first month and when you're trying to balance incentives and balance consequences playing poorly in the first month can put you in a position where your team doesn't have momentum it can put you in a position where then you're chasing the whole way in terms of things as simple as play calling what do we need to do to make our team work it obviously can put you behind in the standings. And while taking the long view, and we also have seen teams maybe be in some cases a little bit more patient with injuries, although some of our main guys have gone out there and gotten re-injured uh, in numerous cases over the last month. You have this season's one game longer, but it's still a sprint in the NFL. And so I guess, it, especially if you don't have a team that – has continuity at maybe the most important spots i mean obviously the bills the chiefs there are still some things they're trying to do the chiefs made a lot of changes but if you have patrick mahomes if you have josh allen but but even with the chiefs we saw them actually play patrick mahomes whereas some teams didn't in the preseason i think that when you're balancing that versus what we saw this last week that became pretty controversial where christian mccaffrey and cooper cup are playing in garbage time i mean you get a lot of focus on the cup element because he actually turns his ankle and hopefully it's just you know one of those minor turns that a lot of us get playing sports not one of these turns where you've actually torn ligaments and your ankle is the size of a basketball for weeks and you're seriously injured. But McCaffrey was out there at the end of that game too when it made absolutely no sense. If you're gonna protect players do it in game situations like that. The flip side of that is we did see some teams take guys out. Obviously Eagles did ahead Some teams did from behind where obviously you can't catch up. Don't get your guys hurt. But that was kind of a weird one where you see two high-profile teams and two very high-profile players out there when they shouldn't be. Yeah, then we have witnessed all of this carry over. And then the other big element with it is that it very much appears that veteran players, and I think especially we've witnessed the veteran wide receiver stars have been able to separate from the group because within this overall environment and then a scoring environment that's down, the one thing that teams have been able to count on are those superstars. Everybody else has been difficult to incorporate in a way that works for reality and then manifests itself as fantasy points. Yeah.
1: And we have talked a lot about the defensive side of things as well. It's interesting to look around the league at the way these things have played out the off season and kind of just do a report card because you have obviously, you know, Russell Wilson going to Denver and and a lot of fantasy football excitement about that entire offense and how bad that has gone. Right. And you have uh, an underrated one that you and I were talking about a little bit yesterday uh, off the air was uh, the Bengals really tried to address their offensive line all off season. It was a reason I was kind of excited about them being able to repeat or actually maybe take a step forward because, if you looked at like Super Bowl odds in the offseason, the Bengals were down for a team that had made the Super Bowl and has a young core and had Joe Burrow and these young receivers. They were at like 10th overall in terms of Super Bowl odds, which is not really where you find a team that you think is building still in the rookie QB window. And they had addressed their what seemed to be their biggest flaw last year, offensive line through free agency, bringing in three new starters. And their offensive line been poor. Like they, I don't know if they just need to gel or what is going on there. But you and I tried to break that down a little bit with each other, going through some different metrics, and it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on there because if you go back, and we did, to some of the offseason notes, there was all this conversation about how they were addressing their biggest need, and their their offensive line was the most improved uh, of the entire NFL, and they've been terrible. Maybe the worst, I mean, it's been, you mentioned on Monday night, just the worst that we've seen. The, The Browns completely destroying their passing game certainly not helped by not having Jamar Chase on the field and some other elements. There's always, you know, layers to these things, but you, you think about those types of outcomes, the Broncos, the, the Bengals offensive line, arguably the, the chiefs receivers who were started to get to, you know, come together a little bit before the buy, but for a while looked like, okay, this isn't going to plan. And then you contrast that with a team like the dolphins, who I think are the, sort of shining example of what you're hoping for, which is, hey, we grab a player like Tyreek Hill, we plop him in. Everyone thinks this is going to be great for the whole offense. It's going to be great for Tua. It's going to elevate Jalen Waddell by taking attention away from him. This is the thesis for fantasy football. This is the upside scenario. And it all has pretty much meshed from day one. So it's not impossible. We can't just say that this is the NFL And it's really, really hard to get up to speed because the Dolphins with a new coach, whole new system, new coach, you know, new offensive. And so is that coaching? I mean, that's one of the things that I'm, you know, I'm trying to think about or or contemplate is that do we give Mike McDaniel a ton of credit there? I think we I think we we should definitely give him some when we consider the other good coaches around the league. We know Andy Reid's a good coach, for example, not necessarily being able to get the guys that they brought in up to speed to be ready right away early in the season. It's, it's really interesting to look at that Hill outcome as one that actually went to script, the way you would draw it up in the offseason. This is a guy we're plugging in, and everything's going to be fantastic compared to Devontae Adams, right? The the Raiders bring him in. Those were the two really high-profile wide receivers that changed teams. I mean, A.J. Brown fits in there as well, and he's another one that is similar to the Tyree Kill example where you know some of the, the hope there was, okay, he's going to make Jalen Hurts be better at throwing over the middle and on these in-breaking routes that he was so poor at last year, because AJ Brown is great at that. He's going to help the past TD rates because he's this big physical dominant receiver. Like we saw last week do, you know, score three touchdowns on those types of plays we talked about on the last show. So maybe Hill and Brown are, are good examples. Adams is a, maybe a, a flip side or, you know, a cautionary tale in some respects where, but even his numbers are actually quite good. They're good. But he's coming it seems off of the like, game that was, it, yeah, Exastant he's coming story. up one bad game. He's been fantastic, but it seems like plugging him in should make the offense so much better, and it really hasn't. They've had to resort to, to focusing on Josh Jacobs, which is unfortunate. Some of that's Waller's injury and some
2: other thing. Having Waller unable to stay healthy has been a big dagger for the offense, but as you watch that game this past weekend, it's, I think, a clear example of... When we've talked about some of the elements where we think that the running backs aren't worth anything or they actively hurt your team if you have a good one thesis has a lot of truth and also has some holes as i was watching this game i was thinking to myself this is the perfect example and i think back to the fantasy douche you know at the beginning of wrote of this talking about how much marshawn lynch was actually hurting the seahawks which again i mean i think a lot of people would debate but you can look at the numbers and it was very stark in terms of some of the things that were happening there you watch this game and it gives you the impression that once Jacob started to play well they failed then to develop anything else and then in part his dominance has covered up a complete collapse and now you have these rumors that you know the Raiders are already out on Josh McDaniels which I don't think is a surprise when you watch that game and it's got to be frustrating for ownership to look at this offense and think well then where is this running back passing attack that he was supposed to bring from the Patriots they have none of that where is the Wes Welker Julian Edelman element to this passing attack I mean one of the things that has been so odd as you watch with the underneath guys there is that I mean John Gruden really unlocked Derek Carr and now they have nothing even though they have players who would seem to fit that role. I mean, Hunter Renfro was someone we were not particularly high on in Dynasty. We didn't draft a lot in Redraft, and yet it's stunning to watch the Raiders play and have him not be involved at all. I mean, that it I, I just, I'm mind boggled by it. And obviously there's an element there where Derek Carr's weaknesses, once Gruden and the Gruden offense is gone, are starting to come back to the fore. But that's a coaching issue. I mean, Josh McDaniels both doesn't have his offense, or at least the positive parts of it from the Patriots time period, but he also doesn't have any of the positives that Derek Carr had had under Gruden. So, I mean, you have to have one of those two things. But again, it's a reminder of how continuity is relevant. And you hear about it so much from an offensive line perspective. But certainly when you have a new coach, you have a new star wide receiver, you have these moving pieces and you have Darren Waller injured. It's not going to be the same as if those guys had been together for three years and we're seeing that kind of thing across the league.
1: Yeah, I'm probably overstating Devonte Adams being part of the problem here. I think you said that really well. The Waller injury doesn't help, but also I think it's a, as you stated, a, a pretty clear negative mark on Josh McDaniels as a coach to come in. I mean, it's not just that they're not successful, but this is an offense that, as you say. John Gruden, for all his faults, probably a pretty good coach, but has been able to get some stuff out of it when it had less talent, right? And Waller had injuries last year, and and <clears throat> obviously Gruden wasn't there for for all of last year. But you go back two years, like Hunter Renfro hadn't really broken out. I mean, you're basically working with Waller and, and Renfro, a lot different than when you are able to add in Devonte Adams to this passing attack, and Carr played a lot better on you know in those systems for McDaniels to not be able to come in and get, like you were saying, I mean, not be able to at least look competent or make the offense look okay. Like they are building towards, I mean, that's, there is new pieces. There is a new offense, all of those things, but it's a pretty big issue that they've looked as bad as they have. Are there not things that you have as a coach that you can go to in your system that can get you, I mean, you're supposed to be this offensive guru that can get you to, Below average, as opposed to terrible production in, in spots, right? So that your offense doesn't completely bottom out when you have this type of talent. And if you're completely di- deprioritizing a player like Hunter Renfro, who is actually probably a good asset to have in your offense, if you're not able to get Devonte Adams going with more regularity than we would like to have seen, because there was a couple early games as well. There's other games where he's been fantastic, obviously, but they haven't had answers. And that's, I think, I mean, that's something we've talked about before. That's a big part of coaching. It's a big part of football is you don't always know the way the teams are going to game plan. You don't always know the way that they're going to approach you and attack you. And it's having answers. And and we talk about in like some Super Bowls and things, you know, the Chiefs Super Bowl against the Bucks. how the Bucks had uh, a really good defensive line. Uh, push, uh, you know, really good pressure on Mahomes all game. You and I have, have talked a little bit about how we think the Chiefs were probably closer in that game than it, the went down in history in terms of missing on a few really key plays, and they could have potentially still competed despite that uh, that concern. But when you have something. That that's you know a game plan that is so clearly taking away some of your strengths or some of the things you want to do in your game plan. Do you have answers? Do you have other places to go? One of the things maybe the Chiefs did poorly in that Super Bowl, if we can criticize them a little bit, is you know I thought Andy Reid would have a really robust screen game going because he's been so good at you know interesting screen games. He has two weeks to prepare, and and they didn't do a lot of that. And part of that they fell behind, but there wasn't a lot of designed ways to get the ball out and mitigate that you know intense rush that the Bucs were having. Sometimes we'll see that from the really great teams in these big spots and Super Bowls and things, but when you're playing the New Orleans Saints on a on a random, you know, week 8 game, you have to have answers. They can't have shown you something that is so complicated that you have that offensive performance.
2: And you mentioned the contrast between the Raiders and the Miami Dolphins, and the Dolphins I think is such a cool one because this is a team that hasn't capitulated to the way defenses are playing. And They have this pass first offense. They're able to get the two guys in the top 10 of current or in the top five of current wide receiver rankings. Blair has a great article on this. He points out that the six previous teams this century to have two players in the top five after eight weeks, none of them were able to finish with both people in the top five. I think it'll be interesting to see if the Dolphins can do it. One of the kind of cool notes that he has is that Randy Moss and Wes Welker both finished in the top five in 2009. They were not in the top five through eight, so obviously you can still have two guys do it. Demarius Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders had top five finishes in 2014 after Demarius Thomas and Wes Welker couldn't keep that up throughout all of 2013. So, this is actually a team where you have back to back seasons and a new player comes in to fill basically the wide receiver two role. And you do end up accomplishing it. The Dolphins you know, at the top of the league in terms of intended air yards per game. We're going to see the teams like the Bills, like the Dolphins. You think back to, uh, again, we spent a lot of time on the not quite Hail Mary to DJ Moore. The teams that come through and build dynamic offenses within the current environment are not going to be the ones that let defenses dictate to them and end up with these quality rushing attacks. They're going to be the teams that went through the air like we saw the Philadelphia Eagles do last week with Jalen Hurts to AJ Brown.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Sean, one of the things we didn't talk about with the trade deadline in yesterday's show was sort of the impact on the players left behind. We were talking about the players that did move and and how they would maybe fit in with their new teams. But you have these situations now with Detroit, with no TJ Hawkinson there, with Indianapolis without Naheem Hines there and how that might move forward with San Francisco without Jeff Wilson there and what that might mean for sort of the handcuffs behind Christian McCaffrey. I think it opened up some, handcuff possibilities, right? Some interest and, and, and in Pittsburgh without without Chase Claypool there and, and what that means. Maybe that's an interesting one to start on. My thought on that was Pickens had already kind of won the downfield role in this offense. Claypool had been operating mostly underneath. I saw a lot of people discussing this trade as if it unlocked George Pickens. But that was kind of an interesting take because to me, the way that they had been using Chase Claypool more or less had already indicated that Pickens had already won that outside downfield sort of vertical role. I think with where Claypool's average depth of target is and the, the majority of his targets have been, certainly there's some downfield work and it solidifies Pickens in that regard. But I thought it was maybe more positive for Deontay Johnson to continue to consult. I mean, he already gets so many targets, but, but Pat Friermuth as well. It is a It's beneficial to all three of those receivers now that you don't have really four NFL caliber wide. I mean, you know, good caliber wide receivers that are competing for targets. Claypool not being there is going to consolidate things for the other three in various ways. Pickens hasn't really hit yet, so my point is somewhat semantical because I still think Pickens' production going forward will be better than it's been to this point. I was just I'm, I'm basically arguing that we already should have expected that even if Claypool was in the offense, right? It's not a it's not a particularly strong point, but it, it's positive for Deontay. It's positive for Frymuth. It's positive for Pickens. I I guess my main point would be it, it, it's a balance of all three more so than being clearly a Pickens related positive note. But then, like I said, Pickens was already sort of set up to be a second half riser.
2: He was, and the quarterback play from the Steelers has really dictated that they've had to go away from some of the things that they might have preferred to do. You mentioned the target depth from Claypool, and that's fallen from over 13 yards down the field a couple years ago to 11 and a half last year to under 10 this year. So his profile changing a lot. And we talk most of the time, it's certainly not the case for everyone. You have Some other players like an Alan Lazard, for example, not a really high profile player, but someone who is very relevant this year because the Packers weren't going to have these other weapons. The Lazard has kind of been all over the place during his Packers career from a target depth perspective, someone who could fill different roles based on what the offense needs. But in many cases, these guys are being targeted at a specific depth because that's where they dominate. That's where they win in terms of routes. And that's what the offense needs from them. I think that when you look at the Steelers here, it going from four to three is huge because we talk a lot about even three being problematic. And Claypool, I think, probably would have been marginalized anyway. And partly what they've been doing over the last month is try to showcase him for a trade. Not that it was going to be this massive win, but now that they've gotten the second round pick, you could Definitely claim that it has been a huge win for them. Deontay Johnson sitting there at under five yards per target, even though, I mean, his ability to gain targets, route percentage extremely high overnight is actually higher than Claypool. Right. So these guys have flipped. And I think that that part of it is interesting from the perspective of where does Johnson go. It's also a little bit of a reminder from time to time that. Don't necessarily want slightly deeper targets for someone who is dominating underneath because being able to turn an extremely high percentage of them into receptions, get that chance to run after the catch, those things can be valuable. One of the cool things in, again, sort of referencing Miami, is that the big thesis that we had for Waddle and his breakout was related to the fact that his target depth was going to jump almost for sure, but they've done it in a way that has maintained his ability to also... Run after the catch. You're hoping to see more of that from the Steelers as they go on. When you look at the receivers here, I think that these guys are great buys. It's going to be hard to buy Pickens because people are so excited about him. But this little dip and the donut that he puts up last week anytime time that you have these small negative performances, even if people know, I mean, you can know that the guy is going to bounce back, and that if you're the seller, that maybe this isn't the time where you shouldn't be emotionally moved by that we have a little bit more of a chance to buy him here there's already now frustration with kenny pickett even though this should have been expected because he's going through this tough slate of opposing defenses yeah i'll continue to argue that he's been better
1: than uh, he's not been terrible but uh i mean he's not been great is what i meant to say but he's been
2: better than he's getting credit for at least right because of because of those tough matchups and so when you see someone like fryer dominating targets at the tight end position and and we mentioned that we've had some trades where he and Mark Andrews were actually valued not identically but within the same ballpark in terms of how the trade was structured. I mean, he's someone who looks like a star if he can avoid the concussion injuries or issues and I mean, first off just for his personal healthier wanting that, it is something that's relevant from a fantasy perspective you just desperately want him to go the Brandon Cooks route, where Cooks had some real trouble with concussions. Cooks had more lingering symptoms as well than Fryerman's had, but when you have a number in relatively close succession, that's an issue. But I think that you have to be buying Pickens. He's someone who we talked about after the preseason, or at least one of my bold predictions was that, you know, you look two or three years down the line, and if you paid anything after the 101, which is going to be Breeze Hall, For him, you probably would be pretty excited about that. So anybody who selected Pickens was going to be excited. I don't know that you want to pay to that level. One of the things that is going to come out of 2022, when we look a few years down the road, is that this is going to be an undervalued wide receiver class. A lot of these guys are going to end up hitting and being stars. Because of the environment this year and because of injuries, to guys like Dotson and Burks, We're not seeing all that. And then the quarterback situation in Atlanta and Pittsburgh are covering up those guys. But there are so many little breadcrumbs here that suggest massive breakouts down the line. You contrast that to next year's class where, I mean, they're going to be good players out of that group. But it's probably a little bit overvalued, especially when you put that in the context of a a five-year span, classes before, classes after.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting when we look back at 2022 in Dynasty because the rookie draft discussion was that 2022 was such a poor class that you would trade any old pick for the same level of pick in 2023. Sean, you were talking a lot about maybe that was accurate because the 2023 class is expected to be very strong, but that there is too much emphasis put on it to where everything is a market value equation and 2022 picks became too acquirable and and we acquired them and you know in our league and um tried to in in leagues that we were doing on our own as well and and draft a lot of these guys because you get the earlier information there's definitely a time factor when you're trading into the future if you're trading a 2021 or 2022 first for a 2023 first and expecting them to be sort of in the same range of the first round you're giving up a lot in terms of what that might actually mean and the players have been good. And, and like you said, maybe they haven't all statistically put that up. And, and so there might be some buying opportunities, but this class has looked just as deep as any other rookie class, if not deeper in terms of, especially the early playing time and not necessarily the production again. But Pickens is a guy, he talked about Claypool's A dot and how it had gone down from the 13.5-ish to 11-ish to then sub 10. The 11-ish last year was, Still their deep threat role, but you had Ben Roethlisberger really struggling to get it down the field. Even two years ago, was able to get it down the field a little bit more. That was their deepest A dot, but it was down for Claypool. Dropping to the sub-10, I mean, this year, the way that you would describe it, if you're, is it's never a one-for-one, one, but he sort of moved into the Juju role after Juju Smith-Schuster moves on, plays a lot in the slot, and has got a lot underneath targets. And Pickens his ADOT is over 13 and a half. I mean, he's the one that has taken on that Claypool role now that they have a little bit more arm strength in the quarterback that ADOT for that role has been rising. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited about with as well. As you mentioned, this will be a really fun passing game, I think, to 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 look at down the stretch. And and Sean, we, we've talked a little bit on the show, not just that they've had a really tough schedule to date, but that you mentioned to me, the, the Road of the Strength of Schedule streaming app has Pittsburgh as the number one Quarterback schedule, but that's going to correlate with the pass catchers as well from weeks 12 to 17. So, down the stretch here, leading into the fantasy playoffs and in the fantasy playoffs, there are some plus matchups for the Steelers. Maybe you're not going to see Pickett be a guy that is worth trusting, and especially in single QB fantasy leagues. I think he's still going to be worth playing in in two QB and super flex down the stretch. But you will, I think, see some of these receivers have or, or tight end Fryermuth. I think you're going to see some good Deontay Johnson pickings and or Fryermuth games in the key parts of the fantasy season. I mean, that's a big deal. Even starting on the other side of their bye, they're on a bye this week, but I, I believe they're like fourth or fifth in the, in the strength of schedule streaming app. They do have one more tough matchup in week 11 with the Bengals, but that's the last one on their schedule that's like a, a clear red kind of stay away type matchup. Week 10 is a reasonably decent matchup. And then again, week 12 to 17 is when it's the top schedule the rest of the way. So very promising upcoming schedule for a team that has had to go through some bumps and bruises with a tough schedule for the last few weeks. But we've felt like, look, an interesting stat on Pickett. I've seen a lot of people mention his uh, touchdown to interception ratio. They have been bad in the red zone. But again, against good defenses, I don't have the number for this week. He threw another interception this past week. But last week, he had already thrown seven interceptions over at Pro Football Focus were a great turnover-worthy plays. He only had five turnover-worthy plays. We've talked about how he, in his first couple starts, had a couple bad luck interceptions. One was a Hail Mary. I mean, so you can look just at his box score and say, oh, this guy hasn't been good. He has two touchdowns and eight interceptions. He has fewer turnover-worthy plays, and that includes fumbles as well, than number of turnovers he's had, because he's had a couple of these bad luck deflections. He's also not gotten the benefit of you know some dropped interceptions when he's thrown some bad passes that We tend to forget about with some quarterbacks who will throw balls to the defense and then kind of get lucky. It's been one of those things where every time Pickett's made a bad throw, it's been picked off. And then every time he's thrown sort of a 50-50 ball, or not necessarily one that would be considered this turnover-worthy play, it's been deflected up and then picked off. I mean, he's just been getting pretty unlucky on that on that uh, you know, TD interception ratio. It it looks terrible, a two to two to eight T D to interception ratio. That's not the whole story with him. He's completed 68% of his passes already. I mean, he's done a lot of really good things otherwise. But yeah, that's a, that looks like a pretty fun offense. The Lions, I mean, we got some interesting quotes from Dan Campbell this week about DeAndre Swift maybe not being all the way back, maybe they rushed him back. That was a little disheartening to hear cuz we're excited to see such an exciting player back at full strength. My immediate thought with the Hawkinson trade was, okay, well DeAndre Swift is going to get a lot of this work underneath. Everyone's going to be excited about amon Ross St. Brown, but he's already sort of the focal point, earning a lot of volume, kind of similar to what I was saying about Deontay Johnson, where there's only so much more that one guy can get. I do think it's good for Raw and solidifies that he's going to be that main guy in the wide receiver and tight end room, especially in the underneath area where Hawkinson is also going to operate. It also opens up their offense to shift a little bit when Jameson Williams finally comes back, who unfortunately is still a little bit away. and we We're hearing that that timeline is going to be, or maybe he's only going to get a couple of games at the end of the season, but when he gets back or when DJ Chark gets back or whoever, there might be a little bit more of a vertical element. But immediately, Hawkinson operating in the short area of the field has to be a positive being out of the offense. now has to be positive for Amon Ross St. Brown. has to be a positive for Swift, who they use so heavily in the passing game, runs a ton of routes, even though he gives up a lot of the rushing to Jamal Williams. His health is the big concern, though. We don't, we don't really know where he's at, but it seems like he can earn a lot of targets. The other tight ends in that offense maybe could get interesting as well. They have Brock Wright, and they have the rookie, I can't think of his name right now, but had a pretty interesting profile as well. And you mentioned
2: that Elman Ra can't get a lot higher, but it's so crucial in terms of being able to sustain what he's done because he goes through this nine-game stretch where he has a 35% target share. And that really only ends then when he gets hurt, right? So was was he going to do that for the rest of his career? Was he going to have a target share well above guys like DeAndre Hopkins and Cooper Cup and Deontay Johnson, Devontae Adams? Obviously not. Now the floor gets even higher. And I mean, he's got this incredible floor to start with. It also is just so great for Williams, as you mentioned, because there is less of a threat an elite offense or a concentrated offense or a chasing offense. I mean, there are three different paths that two guys, if those guys are actual stars, which we don't know about Williams yet, but you can support those two players. And it may not be to the level that they have supported Hill and Waddle in Miami. Again, that's fairly unique. But if you're talking about placing two people in the top 10, I think especially if you drafted Williams in Dynasty this year. And I think that's still going to be a very good play. It gets a little bit more frustrating when you look at just how good Garrett Wilson has been and just how good Chris Olave has been. There were at least some mild questions about those players because they had to split with each other because they get all the benefits of this elite Ohio State offense. And what does that mean for Williams when he then goes to a different place? The fact that those guys have been so good is the part that really then fills out this class to make it an elite class, you're now having to take a zero for a full year and you still don't know what Williams is going to be. But if you took that risk because he looks like the guy who could be the biggest star, I think it's hard to say he's going to be the biggest star now with how good Garrett Wilson looks. But when you took that risk and now you have Hawkinson gone, that part just has to be very exciting because they're not going to be able to key on him with Amon Ra there. That's one of the things where You say, okay, sometimes in these short stints, if you lose the other main target hog, then your target floor gets to be so high. But if both players are already very good, why even take that risk? Why take the risk that a team will do what the Ravens have claimed has been done to Mark Andrews over the past several games, where you do have that little bit of a valley because teams are simply saying, you know, be some other way, right? You've got the two guys, And one of the fun things about the Lions that maybe, this is overly optimistic, but the Lions actually have a lot of paths here, I think, from the quarterback position, where some of these other teams, maybe are having a little bit more, or have more risk attached to them. The Lions being so bad, and I certainly think that the trade of Hawkinson makes them worse the rest of the way. In all likelihood, they're going to be in position to hit one of these guys, maybe you get themselves a Kyler Murray or a Justin Herbert, a Josh Allen. We know that people miss. And he, until he blew up this year, it looked like two might be a miss, for example. But they can go multiple directions with it. They can stay with Goff, who even though he's a mediocre quarterback, has been able to support fantasy players in a way that a lot of other quarterbacks can't. So that one will work. But then if they take one of these young stars, then you have a young QB wide receiver combination for a decade. And so I like these Lions guys having that part of it going for them, where a team with like the Jets, for example, I mean, they might be tempted to stay with Zach Wilson if the team has a winning record. If the team has a winning record, they're not going to be in position to get one of the studs. I mean, there's actually quite a bit more risk with the Jets and some of these other teams, the Atlanta Falcons, for example. Than there is now I think with the Detroit Lions.
1: Yeah, the Lions are setting up really well. And and as you talk through that, I think the biggest impact on this trade is in Dynasty, where if you can right now kind of sneak into the you know the Jamison Williams market or potentially Amin Al St. Brown or DeAndre Swift or whoever in terms of a 2023 move, there's a couple risks. The biggest one I think is that they fired Dan Campbell because they don't need to do that, but they're already talking about. And I mean, this year's going perfect. This team is playing competitively. I mean, they were the the Hard Knocks team and everything, and we, you know, that's whatever. Very dubious to to make a, a claim there, but I, I do think there's probably some reason that Hard Knocks teams don't aren't particularly successful. Having cameras in the building at all times and having these shows starting to air while you're still in training camp and everyone's a little bit more focused on things that are maybe outside, a little more social media attention, some of those things, getting different types of questions in camp probably makes it a little bit harder to be as focused as you want to be on just what you want to do as a team and all of those things. But they've come out, they've been very competitive. They play hard. They play well, frankly, other than obviously on the defensive side of the ball, they've really struggled. I don't think this is a a team that you look at as a one in six record and say that you need to fire their coach. I mean, they're just not that talented. They've had some injury issues too. They've lost their best two best offensive players for stretches and, and in game and, and all of those things. This wasn't really supposed to be a big winning season. You are still in the Jared Goff situation when they traded for Goff, they knew he would be there through at least 2022 because if they were to have cut him this past off season, $40 million in dead money, negative cap savings of about 10 million, it's just not something that you could do his cap number, he is the big QB contracts is set to be 30 million or 31 million in this season, but also 2023 and 2024. But after 2022 is where the dead money cap savings thing flips, where if they did want to cut him after this year, it's 10 million in dead money. That's a lot, but it's also 20 plus million in cap savings. So now suddenly, rather than being 40 dead mill against a 30 cap number with negative 10 in cap savings, it's 10 dead money against a 30 mil cap number with 20 million in savings. They might still want to hold him actually, because they probably will have a rookie QB on a QB contract. And what we're hearing lately or what I've heard, I'm not very into the prospect stuff in season, but it is that there, you know, we know Stroud and Young have been talked about a bunch, but there's two more that might be in the top 10. There might be four quarterbacks, and potentially the top four picks, right? You have the, the Tennessee quarterback. I've, I've, I've heard discussed as, as potentially being a late riser uh and someone else that i'm not thinking of but you have the potential i mean for the lions right now at one and six they're in in line to be the number one seat the Houston Texans are one five and one there's a, a lot of two win teams there's a possibility that the lions end up because they are better than some of these teams in like the the fourth pick or the fifth pick but in that spot you can probably still get a quarterback as the point i'm trying to make that's probably the move they want to go with they might still keep golf despite you know it is still ten million in dead money, and and he's played well. That's probably a positive. I mean, I think the, the the best case scenario is Campbell is still there next year. Goff is there to help with the rookie quarterback, so you have a little bit of insurance, right? In terms of the best case scenario for fantasy for the skill position players, because as you just noted, Goff can support skill position players. But more importantly, Jamison Williams is healthy now. Ideally, DeAndre Swift has a healthy season, right? Amon Ross St. Brown can have a healthier season. You have a team. A lot of talent, they're going to be able to add more to that. They're going to need to add on the defensive side as well, but pretty good offensive line. They've gotten a lot of good rushing out of Jamal Williams, who I don't think is an exceptional runner or anything. I mean, they've done a pretty good job of blocking up front. This is a team that looks like they could actually be in pretty good position if they do hit on that early quarterback pick and they go that route and everything to be competitive right away in 2023. And what you would want to see in 2022 is a team that is playing hard, is playing well, is hungry. Ideally, would be hungry into next year as well, but then we'll get that boost of you know a top five pick, and and so the record not matching the way that they're playing, not a bad thing, <laughs> not not a, not a bad thing. It sets them up really well, and you can see a lot of scenarios where if Jamison Williams is that hit, you talked about the different layers that they can attack defenses on. Now, I mean, Amon-Ra is going to draw coverage underneath. Jamison's going to be able to do stuff downfield and underneath. I mean, we've seen a lot of these explosive deep threat receivers also you know, do stuff underneath. I mean, that was, I mean, we've seen it with Tyreek Hill. We've seen it with a lot of guys. Devonta Smith's profile was that he can be a vertical, explosive player, and they've been using him a lot more underneath. It's not bad to get the ball in the the hands of these guys around the line of scrimmage as well. So I'm sure they'll do a lot of creative stuff with Jameson Williams in the long term. Very exciting prospect profile, like you noted. I mean, I'm sure there's not a lot of people selling him right now in Dynasty, but you look at the Lions and you look at where they're at and how it's setting up and how the record is going to mean that they're probably going to get a top pick. It's a, it's a promising picture for the 2022 offseason and, and what we're going to
2: think going into 2023. It definitely is. You mentioned in the previous show, the value of those early second round picks. The difficulty in tanking and setting yourself up for these picks in a sort of a multi-year stretch as the Lions have basically done now is that it's hard to tank in the NFL and still develop your team to have a good process to do things the right way and still lose games. The Lions have done that, which is almost magical for them for the long term. So if, if they manage to lose a lot of these close games and actually build the team while they were able to have that record, one of the things that's been controversial over the past couple of years is you know, some of the stuff that's come out about teams actively trying to tank or this disconnect between front office and coaches, whether things are being done to try and tank the lions, obviously not trying to tank. I mean, they're playing great football. If you can do that, develop your roster while at the same time, getting yourself in this position, as you note, the other thing that's I think very relevant from a fantasy perspective is that the lions setting up to be such a good team is huge for at least one of these quarterbacks. You think of what the top, you know, two or three picks are going to be next year in super flex rookie drafts. And You have Robinson, you have Gibbs at the running back position, possibly transcendent talents. Robinson, a guy who might be able to compare to players like Brees Hall and Jonathan Taylor might be better. And when you're offsetting that or comparing that to a quarterback and the quarterback market will be interesting. No one really expected, especially post-draft for the QBs to be very relevant in this year's Season And also as rookie picks, but you have the players from the 2021 draft struggling guys like Lawrence massively underperforming, not getting much from a fantasy perspective from Wilson and Mac Jones, Justin Fields being very controversial, Lance having to sit and then getting hurt. We know that fantasy managers really react to what's happened most recently. So there's some reason to believe the quarterback market will be softer, especially if there are a lot of guys, although most managers aren't going to have a ton of picks in the top six, right? So you're not going to have multiple picks to address things. At the same time, because those other quarterbacks have missed, a lot of people need quarterbacks in Superflex because a lot of veterans and offenses in general have collapsed Even people who were not exposed to the rookie quarterback market over the past couple of years need quarterbacks. So, uh, there are going to be a lot of teams trying to address that. And when you are sitting there on the clock trying to decide Robinson, Gibbs, or a QB, and you think about some of the teams who passed on players like, I mean, Travis Etienne, probably not a ton of regats so far because he's only started really doing things the last couple of weeks, but passed on players like a Jamar Chase, for example, to select. A Trey Lance, will people pass on those stud running backs for these QBs when you think if the QB hits, I mean, he maybe has a a career that's twice as long and it's super flex. I think the fact that the Lions could make one of those guys an impact player right away is going to factor into how those first three or four picks come off the board. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: And again, just to reiterate how the Lions are playing. One and six, but they've lost to the Eagles by three, the Vikings by four, the Seahawks by three, and the Dolphins by four. Those are four of the most surprising teams in the NFL this year. I mean, we yeah, think the Eagles season. the Eagles are undefeated. We think the Dolphins are one of the better up-and-coming rising teams. We think the Vikings, I mean, a lot of people have said the Vikings are somewhat fraudulent, but I mean, they're six and one. They're, they're a good football team. And then a lot of people are actually saying the Seahawks are more real than... I probably want to admit. So <laughs> you have four teams. I mean, They've had a couple games where they've looked bad. They looked bad in that New England Patriots game. They looked bad in Dallas. And not terrible, as you pointed out, without the Jamal Williams fumble. They, might have they been could able have to win. won that game. They could have won that game. They ended up losing that game by 18, but they didn't really look bad. That's actually not fair. They looked bad in the Patriots game for sure. And they won against Washington. I mean, they, they've had played a tough schedule, a lot of competitive teams. The Patriots is the one outcome that really went poor. But the rest of the, the teams that they've lost to so far this year, and that's probably why it's going to work against them going down the stretch because they're going to beat some of these other teams that they're playing coming up. They get the Bears twice. They play the Jaguars later. They play the Jets. They play the Panthers. They're probably going to win some of those games, right? They haven't held on to beat good teams, but they've led in a lot of those games. I just mentioned that were close losses. I think maybe all of them with the possible exception of the the Eagles game, or do they lead? Yeah, they were up 7-0 early in that game, at least. But the the Dolphins game, they were up by a lot. The, the Vikings game, they were up by a lot. The Seahawks game, back and forth. But Lions definitely competitive in that game as well. I mean, this is a, a team that's played against some good teams and played them tough. Uh, and so, yeah, you think about the ways that their season has gone so far. It's been pretty promising. Sean, just like last note, do you have any big takeaways on – The Colts backup situation, Deion Jackson was a big ad in high-stakes stuff this week. He hasn't actually ran particularly effectively. Our buddy Pat Corain made a good point to me that they haven't got the running game going with Jonathan Taylor back there. Uh, What what, what do you expect out of Deion Jackson? 3.3 yards per carry for him so far has caught a lot of passes out of the backfield, but also that was with Matt Ryan. And so we kind of expect that to be something that's not as great in the offense. I'm excited about Deion Jackson, the potential there, especially with Taylor's health not being a clear – Situation: We're not sure how healthy he can be the rest of the way. There might be some shutdown risk or something. There's been some whispers, but I don't know that we really expect him to be someone who's going to elevate a bad offense. So he's not probably a great handcuff. I saw you in, in a couple of our leagues on your first pass on waivers, throwing in some claims for Elijah Mitchell. Now that Jeff Wilson's out of the San Francisco picture, I think the San Francisco handcuff situation is really interesting. Tyrion Davis price is someone I, I continue to hear from people, but, hasn't really done much, hasn't been used a whole lot. The trade for McCaffrey, not ideal in terms of what they expect out of price. The trade of Wilson might have spoke positively about what they think of in terms of TDP. I think probably Elijah Mitchell is, you know, worth grabbing now. If something were to happen to McCaffrey, he'd be the, the prime guy that would benefit, but maybe TDP is worth stashing as well. What What are your thoughts on those two, Beckham?
2: Yeah, the hard thing as we're going along is just to remember – and to keep reinforcing to ourselves how fluky a lot of these results are going to be from a one-week perspective, and that if you do have someone you like and they're going to touch the ball, that could potentially matter. And that's one of the reasons why I was more excited about Deontay Foreman and Chuba Hubbard than maybe even was justified, but it's easy to look back after it worked out for both of them the first week and then definitely Foreman this last week and say, yeah, I probably. Foreman should not have ever been in a game where he scored three touchdowns in a Carolina Panthers offense, but it did work out that way. Deion Jackson, I think, has some similarities to Isaiah Pacheco in that he's actually a great athlete, wasn't, ha- hasn't been a productive football player, but that athleticism is interesting. You prefer him in any other offense, more or less. I think that the move from Matt Ryan to Ellinger from a – reality perspective maybe made sense for the Colts but it destroys all of those guys because now you have someone who you're not going to have this extreme pass volume with in all likelihood he's not going to be able to make all those checkdowns. I mean the weak arm QB can create a lot of interesting elements from a fantasy perspective that don't help your reality team If they're trying to limit the turnovers, obviously Matt Ryan, a statue, they are going to fumble. He's going to throw interceptions. Then you've got to go out and pass to make up for it. If they become one of the blandest teams in the NFL, it just—it's so hard to score points. The flip side of it is that in any two or three game stretch, I mean, you could get a breakout run. You can have them force some turnovers on defense. You can have the offense actually play okay. They were a couple of little plays away in this game from actually burying the commanders from the young QB looking more like a potential future option. The outcome there really biases us in the direction of, well, they've tried this and it's not going to work. And I think that's going to be the case, but especially for cheap end of the roster guys, we want to keep in mind that there are some other scenarios. And if you can create exposure inexpensively to do that, It's almost impossible with how exciting that last game was to emotionally put ourselves in a position where we can even contemplate Christian McCaffrey getting injured, but players do. And this is going to be a dynamic offense. Mitchell, Tyrion Davis-Price, the perfect stash kinds of players, because unlike the situation with the Colts, this team is going to score. Whoever is back there running back is going to score. It could easily be Mitchell. It could easily be Davis-Price. Who ends up being the league winner for all of 2022? In the previous show, we mentioned how even though because they're running backs and because they're not stars, that Wilson and Hines tend to get buried a little bit in the discussion of the trade deadline, especially from a reality perspective. But those two guys could be, you know, this year's Singletary or this year's Sony Michelle. They could be the guys who, in weeks 15 through 17, determine all of the big money in fantasy football this year that same thing is definitely the case for mitchell and davis price as well so when you have roster spots you got to be adding those guys in the the tricky thing with filling out your running back position is that before things happen it seems like such a long shot after things happen it takes on this sense of inevitability but I mean, the only way that you can benefit is to prepare yourself and then kind of hope that it doesn't happen because we don't, don't want these guys to get hurt. And so that's I mean, that's the tricky part of, I think, playing the running back position in fantasy is that you have to prepare yourself for events that you really don't want to see come to fruition. If you can do that and then stay in a good place emotionally where you're refusing to root for it, then um, that's how you throw the needle.
1: Yeah, that's always the tricky part. McCaffrey looks like he's going to be so much fun in San Francisco. But yeah, we do have to, we do have to contingency plan. We know the realities. Yeah, that was a, a, definitely a low key big element from the trade deadline was to see a lot of these backup running back situations change. We always talk about how it's hard to know who the handcuffs are even going to be at draft season. It starts to solidify some in season. And as you start to get through the buys and you start to know which of your receivers have hit and those types of things, if you have enough depth at receiver, I've got a lot of questions about like Sky Moore and Elijah Moore. I think. It's dependent on your roster some in some respects and what type of league you're playing in. If you're in a FFPC and you're, you're playing for the main event and those are really your only shot for wide receiver upside, you might actually have to stick and hope a little bit with that those something will happen with those guys. But if you have enough depth, if you have enough receiver redundancy, it can make some sense, especially in 12-team leagues or more casual leagues, to be letting those guys go, shrinking down your wide receiver room and starting to build up your running back room under your bench right now and stashing contingency guys that have risen in value based on these trades and based on the happenings of the season, that's an in season shift that we make with our rosters is being willing to be a little bit more condensed on the receiver side. As we start to know who, who the guys we're going to be playing every week is and are, and and then being a little bit deeper with these big swings at running back, a lot of opportunity there. Another thing I wanted to wrap uh, the, the show with from earlier, we were talking through a little bit of the 2020 offseason, a little check-in we thought, I thought, for sure, the major wide receiver trades were interesting. They don't usually happen. They were sort of devaluing, for some teams, devaluing the impact of one elite receiver versus depth at the skill positions, depth at receiver. I do think a big wrap on that as far as so far this season, especially with you talking through ways that the Raiders have still been pretty solid, is that maybe I jumped the gun on that a little bit. Tyreek Hill has been good enough. A.J. Brown has been good enough. Devonta Adams hasn't been able to do it single-handedly, but has made an impact. They've all been pretty clearly, you know, if you're that good of a receiver, you still make an impact type players, right? And so there might still be wins on the other side. I mean, it's been a huge hole for the Packers. It's been a a huge hole for the Titans. The Chiefs are starting to get there a little bit, but it's been a hole for those teams that lost them. And maybe that was the, the obvious answer all along for a lot of people, but why... Elite wide receivers still matter. I think it's been a big storyline of twenty twenty two. Something else I wanted to swing back to, and acknowledge because, yes, we do think receiver and skill position depth matter as well. I saw the same thing with the Bengals as well to a degree. Losing Jamar Chase and how much different their downfield passing game looked. Higgins, Boyd, good players. Jamar Chase, transcendent, and and that's a different level. It's a different thing. You probably still want the depth. You still want multiple players. And Higgins, you know, very very good in his own right. You want a really good second and a good third if you can Obviously, you want a lot of good players. But how good those elite number ones can be has has proven to be pretty interesting. And some of these NFL – it kind of justifies why they rarely are traded. And, and some of these NFL teams, the Packers, the Chiefs, maybe misstepped a little bit this offseason to, to devalue that and to think they could replace that with depth at the position. So an interesting you know, midpoint conclusion as well. We'll see how that continues
2: to play out, but it's sort of played that way pretty clearly so far. I love these trades because they should be win-win, right? And it's a little bit different when you have 32 teams as opposed to 12. We talk all the time in Dynasty where you want to be involved as many trades as possible because it should be a win for you, a win for the person you're trading with, and a loss for their 10 teams in the NFL, win for both teams, a loss for the other 30. The... Kind of cool thing here. You said it it could be a misstep for some of those elite organizations. It's interesting that in so many of the cases, both sides of the trade really were organizations that are doing things right. When you think of the Eagles, you think of the Dolphins really benefiting their teams, giving up. Those receivers include teams like the Ravens, another elite organization. Sometimes you have to have that patience as you build. We'll see if that works out for those teams. Packers fans and Aaron Rodgers, very frustrated through the years that they've been so patient, but there's a possibility this allows a path now for Romeo Dobbs to actually come through and be the guy along with some other pieces. But to have some of these trades that definitely respect the fact that the future contracts are a big part of it and the teams that are giving the picks away not only lose those picks but are paying amounts that in some cases would be not that dissimilar to free agent amounts and then the teams who have moved the players now get the picks and they can use that money in different ways it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll use it effectively obviously the chiefs actually didn't pay that much for the receivers they added but They're not necessarily getting that much either. I think those things are fun because I think that part of what you're seeing with the NFL now is that as the general managers and their staffs, the people they rely on to help them make the key decisions, become savvier with things like the salary cap and are using analytics across a wide variety of elements in their organization, as opposed to just one or two things, I think we'll continue to see moves like this where... As opposed to it being a big win for one side and a big loss for another and you're thinking okay well this is a, an organization that knows what's going on and this was one where they need to fire everybody you're going to see some of these trades where both sides the thesis that they are em- employing when they make the move you can understand how it would help them and these teams especially when you're talking about a, a football team a football roster so many guys so many moving parts there are going to be some of these moves that just very clearly help both sides I think the willingness to go in that route now as opposed to in the past where there's just such extreme risk aversion, not wanting to look silly, not wanting to make moves that might blow up on you. I love the new NFL and I think we're only going to see more excitement going forward.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it it is so much fun to just think back to how how crazy the 2022 off season was to, to look at this trade deadline. Think about what it means. It's been building. We've had more trades in season. I mean, even just, the deadline spurred a lot of action, but we had trades in the in the previous couple of weeks with McCaffrey moving, you know, the week prior and Robbie Anderson moving. And there's some small trades, but teams are, Kadarius, Tony, teams are willing to shuffle guys, move them and and still in the rookie contracts like a Tony and um, McCaffrey on a big deal. Guys that you wouldn't necessarily think are going to be moved. Hawkinson is the other one I'm trying to think of on a rookie contract, kind of came out of the blue. Not You wouldn't really necessarily think of that kind of player being moved. The Neheem Hines is a guy that in past years probably just gets buried if the Colts don't want to use him anymore, but they move him to a team that actually wants to use him. And for not much, I mean, but they're like, we're going to let this player move on with this career, basically. Like we talked about on the last show. I mean, they didn't get a whole lot back, but that willingness to, to make moves and let guys move on when you're not going to use them and, and continue to be shuffling the roster. These GMs are, you know, it's super cliche. People love to, to make the, the silly comments. The GMs are acting like fantasy managers or this or that, or the other thing. But, there's more player empowerment as well. Like let's get these guys that aren't in good situations moved to situations where they're better. And I mean that's been a fun thing. It's been a fun development. We see a lot of disgruntled players that just get buried on rosters over the history of the NFL. And it, there there might be negatives to that too. The Robbie Anderson thing might be viewed as a negative for some people where he sort of just quit on his team and threw a fit and then got traded and now that people might learn the wrong lessons, but the Kadarius Tony thing I think is a great example of a guy that He's had some comments this week. It's nice to be wanted. He felt he wasn't wanted in New York. Whatever the issue was there, I'm not criticizing New York necessarily. We'll see what comes up with KC, but they didn't want. They they pretty clearly didn't want to use him or want him. A lot of talk about him being healthy, not being healthy, all those things. He felt like he was healthy. They did, didn't think he was healthy or whatever. Obviously, that comes across as an excuse in hindsight. They they move him. They move him. They move on from him. The new, you know. GM, the new coaching staff, not a fan of the Tony, probably pick from the old regime and not attached to that draft capital and all that, so they move on from him. The Chiefs get an opportunity, you know, he gets an opportunity. The Chiefs, the Chiefs get an opportunity to to see if they can develop him. It's a it's a positive for everybody, I think. This new landscape. So yeah,
2: I'm right there with you. Fun, fun in F.O. It is so fun, and we've seen the veterans on both sides of the ball score. Really well. And when I say both sides of the ball. I mean, obviously running back and wide receiver, that will be a huge talking point as we go into 2023 and we look at the first and second rounds and the balance of trying to bank some of those points, the risk of collapse versus the risk of betting on players who haven't fully emerged yet. Ben, you and I will do a fun show in the not too distant future where we look back and look forward on our 2023 first and second round projections. I'm looking forward to that. But until we record again, this has been Stealing Bananas. I'm Sean Siegel with me as always. Is ben been can follow at Yards Per Gretch. Make sure you sign up for Stealing Signals. Such a fun read on Mondays and Tuesdays. And then the new column coming out Fridays and Saturdays this year. Sign up for Stealing Lions, his betting project with Dalton Cates. We'd love to have you over at Rotoviz. You can use the coupon code RVRADIO2022 at checkout to get a 10% discount on your one-year subscription. Blair Andrews, Dave Cabin, a bunch of you guys doing a great job. Conor O'Driscoll with his Saturday Battle Royale Underdog article. That has been a reader favorite. If you want to join us at Underdog, use the code ROTOVIS. That's an easy one to remember. Get a 100% deposit match up to 100 bucks. Sign up for the feed. We're going to try some different schedule elements over the next couple of weeks. We're looking forward to that. Leave us a rating and review. All those things help with the algorithm. We love you guys. Talk to you soon.